And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her his wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as far as the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses? In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And so this seems like a lot of material today, but it really, really isn't. Still, this is some really context-rich stuff as we cover two controversy dialogues this week. We don't know if this is the same day as the parable of the tenants or not, but this is a continuation, so we're going to review again, and we will assume that this is still the third day in Jerusalem. No reason not to. I mean, if I can cover this material in 50 minutes, Yeshua can do it a lot less. <laughs> oh. Well, hello, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, um, I have uh, five years worth of blog, almost six now, at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon. 
including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All scripture this week comes from the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want because I am not the translation narc. Um, a list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. Uh, so without further ado, here's the review. Oh, geez, Louise, I don't mean to make this like Dr. Seuss teaches the Bible. So day one, entry into Jerusalem, where Yeshua rides into town on a dedicated donkey's colt, goes into the temple looks around, promptly leaves. These were both prophetic actions hearkening back to what was expected when a king would return from battle. You know, everybody would go out to greet him, all the elders, and uh, he would be paraded through the city. Um, and it would culminate with a visit to the temple and sacrifices made, that sort of thing. Now, Yeshua, Yeshua only looked around and inspected the place, which, you know, isn't good news. Um, they spent the day in, or they spent the night in Bethany. Day two, Yeshua is hungry. He goes to a fig tree out of season, has no edible fruit, and declared judgment that no one would ever eat from this tree again. Then they went to the temple where Yeshua performed the prophetic act of judgment against the worldly and corrupt nature of what had become, um, you know, driving out the, overturning the tables and driving out the money changers and all that. Um, and he stayed to teach the people afterwards. They left and spent the night in Bethany again. Day three, they got up and made their way to Jerusalem, passing the same fig tree, now withered to the roots Yeshua looks toward the temple and tells his disciples that when they pray for the wickedness within the current temple to end, which is the mountain being tossed into the sea, uh, that they do so with hearts that are clean and full of forgiveness. Then they enter the temple where Yeshua's authority and the source of his authority to disrupt the commerce within the temple is challenged. He refuses to answer their challenge unless they admit to their official position on whether or not John the Baptist's ministry was from God, a legitimate ministry, or from men, you know, bogus ministry. You know, they, they realized that however they answered, they were in big trouble. And so they tell him they just don't know, and they have to shut up at that point. They can't say anything else. Yeshua responds, with a parable aimed directly at them, the uh, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Um, and, I, you know, I believe that they were a delegation sent by the Sanhedrin. 
and um, telling them that they have been judged and condemned and that their rulership over God's people will be given to others, which we know historically to be Yeshua's disciples who will assume leadership. They go off and plot as how they can arrest him, which leads us to this next controversy. Whew! <laughs> Um, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So this starts in verse 13, by the way. So here we have the chief priests, scribes and elders colluding with the Pharisees and the Herodians for the specific purpose of entrapping Yeshua so that he will say something anything to get him in trouble with the people. They can't afford not to at this point. They have to be desperate. In a society that relies on honor and shame to keep everyone in their place, they can't allow Yeshua to come up out to the come out on top. But the Pharisees and the Herodians are natural enemies. They detest one another. We saw them plotting back in Mark 3, 6, after the incident with Yeshua, healing the man with the withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath, after which the Pharisees withdrew and began plotting with the Herodians about how to destroy him. Now, the word in last week's parable about the landowner coming to destroy the wicked tenants, that's the same word used to describe the plans of the Pharisees and Herodians against Yeshua. Apolumi. Okay? And I don't think that's coincidental. In aligning themselves with the judicial elites, these particular Pharisees and Herodians are setting themselves up for destruction. Of course, Acts tells us that many Pharisees and regular priests will become believers, so we have to make sure to remember that outsiders can always repent and become insiders. And as we see from Judas, insiders can become outsiders. Verse 14. And they came to say to him, came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. I'm going to stop right there. Flattery is always a huge red flag in honor-shame cultures. It's a real minefield unless the recipient is from a much higher caste, um, social level, and then it is expected and required. When flattery is given within the same peer group, then there are expectations that the compliments are returned somehow. In flattering him, they are acknowledging that in the eyes of the crowd, he has won enough of a reputation rating that it will serve them well to compliment him, but this is no compliment. They are setting him up for what they believe will be a no-win situation. They can only think of two possible answers to the question that they are about to ask and each of those would get him into serious hot water either with the crowd or with the Romans. Either way his ministry is over as far as they're concerned. After all, they've spent a long time thinking about what they're going to say. 
But Yeshua doesn't believe in no-win situ- scenarios. Kind of, no, I'm not going to make Star Trek references. I just did. Okay. He always wins, even when it looks like he loses. And their question is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? <coughs> so there are actually two questions here. One, is it lawful to pay taxes to a heathen emperor oppressing our people? Two, should we pay them? So first consideration here, what tax is being referred to? The Greek word kainsos would be referring to the poll imposed on the Jews in six of the common era, as opposed to the taxes that the farmers had to pay on their crop yields. This is actually the scenario briefly mentioned by Peter in Acts chapter 5, verse 37. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. If you want to read more about Judas the Galilean, you can find that information in Joseph's, Josephus's Antiquities at the beginning of Book 18. And we see that these taxes were no small issue for the Jews, who hated the Romans and hated having to pay tribute to Caesar. The Herodians, of course, supported the taxes because they were living high on the hog. The Pharisees hated the taxes, too, but they had a policy where they paid them in order to get along with the Romans, not wanting to rock the boat. They believed that they were only under Roman occupation because it was Yahweh's will. And so they say paying the poll tax is part of that. So these guys weren't allies. They just knew how to set an effective trap because these taxes were killing your average already financially destitute Jews. So in other words, this wasn't actually a quest for knowledge. They wanted someone outraged. Really, anyone would do in this case. Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now. This is where it gets funny and you have to know some background on this. First century Jews considered any carved likeness of a human or animal to be idolatrous, in keeping with the second commandment. Didn't matter if you were worshipping it or not, they took no chances. The temple itself was bedecked and carved with all sorts of natural images <coughs> in order to simulate the garden in Eden. And Solomon's temple was the same. But no critters and no people. Period. I mean, in fact, this was such an outrage that when Pontius Pilate brought Roman standards into the city under the cover of night, it created an outrage. <clears throat> so this is an account by Flavius Josephus uh, from the Jewish War, Book 2, uh, verses 169 through 174. Pilate, being sent by Tiberius as prefect to Judea, 
introduced into Jerusalem by night and under the cover, undercover the effigies of Caesar, which are called standards. This proceeding, when day broke, aroused immense excitement among the Jews. Those on the spot were in consternation, considering their laws to have been trampled underfoot, as those laws permit no image to be erected in the city. While the indignation of the townspeople stirred the country folk, who flocked together in crowds. Hastening after Pilate to Caesarea, the Jews implored him to remove the standards from Jerusalem and to uphold the laws of their ancestors. When Pilate refused, they fell prostrate around his palace and for five whole days and nights remained motionless in that position. The great stadium where Pilate addressed the Jewish multitude. On the ensuing day, Pilate took his seat on his tribunal in the great stadium and summoning the multitude with the apparent attention of answering them gave the arranged signal to his armed soldiers to surround the Jews. Finding themselves in a ring of troops, three deep, the Jews were struck dumb at this unexpected sight. Pilate, after threatening to cut them down if they refused to admit Caesar's images, signaled to the soldiers to draw their swords. Thereupon, the Jews, as by concerted action, flung themselves in a body on the ground, extended their necks, and exclaimed that they were ready rather to die than to transgress the law. Overcome with astonishment at such in intense religious zeal, Pilate gave orders for the immediate removal of the standards from Jerusalem. So this is no passing fancy. These Jews were willing to die rather than to admit these banners with Roman eagles and other images of Caesar on them. One thing you have to give them credit for, they knew their ancestors had blown it with the idolatry and they weren't about to make the same mistake again. So they were exceedingly legalistic in this area. They wouldn't even allow the Romans to do it. And if this was the reaction down in the city, just imagine how they would have reacted had the images been brought onto the Temple Mount. So this is important background because Yeshua is calling them hypocrites. Why? Because it's, is it because they're asking a question under false pretenses? Yeah, but it goes way deeper than that. Give me a denarius, he says, so I can look at it. Verse 16, and they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Oh man, total burn. Whose likeness is this? What's a likeness? That Greek word is icon. It's the imprint of the face of Tiberius Caesar. Out of the money bag, one of his out of the money bag of one of his questioners on the temple mount i wonder if they even realized as they answered his question that he had just totally discredited them why is there an image of caesar on the temple mount guys 
Why did you have this in your money bag if you're so concerned about holiness? Come on. The people who just sent you over on this mission were asking me about my authority to disrupt commerce on the Temple Mount and to teach people not to carry anything through the courts and looky, looky, what you were carrying. By your own standards, a graven image. Yeah, it's like total mic drop moment. Ugh. Yeah, it's only too late that these guys always realize that the trap that they have so carefully laid, they are going to have to cut off their foot if they want to get out of it. So what about this inscription? Coins recovered from the time period with the faces of the Caesars on them also contain this inscription. And I'll have the actual inscription in Latin in the transcript, but I... I don't read Latin. I, no, I don't. Anyway, but translated into English, it's Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. The reverse tells of his title, Pontifex Maxime. So I can read that. Hopefully that was, oh, hopefully that was accurate. Or head priest of the Roman religion. That's right. Not only did they bring coins with the head of Tiberius up onto the Temple Mount, those coins also claimed that Augustus Caesar was divine, and that Tiberius was his son, a.k.a. Tiberius is the son of God. All right, and before you say, well, that's why they needed money changers on the Temple Mount, I will tell you that they could have done it somewhere else had they wanted to. So this is a super awkward moment. Yeshua had no coins, so they had to give him one. Right now, it is very apparent to anyone in the audience paying attention that they don't object to holding these coins or using these coins. And Yeshua is about to tell them the price tag for using Caesar's coinage. And um, in the transcript, I will have a picture of that coin because we have, I mean, not me, I'm, I'd love to have one of those coins. You know, I'm not wealthy and I don't have these kind of connections, <laughs> but they have the, they've, they have these coins that Yeshua would have looked at. Uh, verse 17. Jesus said to them, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They marveled at him. In other words, another group is silenced. This is the second group to be silenced. After the Sanhedrin delegation we discussed last week. But this is more than just a clever quip. Yeshua's talking about the price of doing business with Caesar, of being under his thumb. Caesar has the power. He mints the coins in his own image, literally. He provides the law and order, such as it is, and is only in charge in the first place because of the wickedness of the last two generations of Hasmonean priest kings. The Jews begged Rome to get involved back in the mess with the Seleucid Greeks, and then the Romans stepped in again to invade when things got out of hand in the early 1st century BCE. Their ancestors created their own occupation and chose their own occupiers. As in former days, 
when they would go to the Egyptians, you know, looking for help against the Assyrians and the Babylonians and whoever. They, they didn't trust God and ended up in a horrible mess enslaved to the very people they put their trust in. It's, it's the same pattern over and over and over again. And it's so painful to see. But yeah, and I'm not saying they had any choice, but to carry these coins and to do business with Caesar. But when they're going to use it to try and discredit. And even if, even if they think he's just a man, they're going to use it to try and discredit him to get a mob riled up against either the people or the Roman soldiers who are in the fortress Antonia a very short distance away. Yeah, no. Rosenquist and welcome back to the second half of this week's character in context. We were talking about literally death and taxes. We're talking about the controversy over whether or not the Jews should have to pay taxes to Caesar and the resurrection controversy. So we've got two of the controversy dialogues this week and Yeshua just, just destroyed the Pharisees and the Herodians by after they challenged him on it, um, on whether they should pay taxes by having them reveal the fact that they were willing and they were carrying these coins that they themselves thought were idolatrous, not only in their money bags in general, but on the temple Mount when they wouldn't even allow Pontius Pilate to have standards with um, Caesar's image on them when he first came to town within the city of Jerusalem. So um, they're silenced now. They We're not going to hear anything more from them. They're, they're done. So anyway, we talked about what was on the coin. The coin was literally calling um, Augustus Caesar God and Tiberius the son of God. So it's like Yeshua saying, you really want this idolatrous coin? You want to hang on to more of them? Give them back. If we really hate idolatrous images as much as we say we do, then refuse to use his coins. Unless, of course, we only hate the images on banners and busts and in statuary. But hey, when it concerns money, you tolerate that well enough. And I mean, this is the Pharisees too. Not just the Herodians who, you know, well, of course they love the Roman coins and no one expects any different of them. And you might be thinking, well, Luke says that the Pharisees love money and this is about taxes and all that. But really it goes so much deeper. This isn't about the coin. It's about the claim on the coin. Tiberius Caesar, a son of God, is suggesting that the Caesars are also owed worship. And remember how I told you about all the little Latin loan words in Mark and how we believe that, no, we, <laughs> how scholars believe, I'm not a scholar, I just play one on the radio, and, and how scholars believe that Mark wrote for a Roman audience, 
They were living in the midst of all the imperial cult demands to worship not only Roma, Rome personified as a goddess, but also the emperors themselves, sometimes the living ones and often the dead ones. During the life of Yeshua, Julius and Augustus were already being worshipped and there were temples dedicated to them in all the provinces. People made sacrifices, they poured out libations. The coins often had the goddess Roma and an imperial temple embossed on the opposite side from the imprint of the head of whatever Caesar minted the coin. This coin wasn't simply saying that they were owed tribute, which is what the tax in question was here. It was a claim to their worship as devotees, something that Jews understood clearly, but Roman Gentiles had to forego at the risk of life and limb. Um, verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, this is actually the first mention of the Sadducees in the gospel, in this gospel. Nothing said about the Sadducees being sent. So perhaps they thought this would be a good idea on their own. I mean, if they succeeded where everyone else failed, it would be quite the coup. I want to spend a few minutes talking about the specific beliefs of the Sadducees from Josephus. I want to say really quick here that the only overt reference in the entire um, Old Testament slash Tanakh to the resurrection is found in Daniel 12 verses 2 through 3. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. It can be argued from different places, but this is the only place that it is outright laid out. Of course, the Sadducees didn't see this as authoritative. Should this bother us? Not really. Yeshua validates the world to come and eternal life, and the Pharisees were already teaching it as doctrine. Okay, Josephus' Wars uh, 2, 164 through 166. Um, but the Sadducees are those that compose the second order to take away fate entirely and suppose that God is not concerned in our doing or not doing what is evil. And they say that to act what is good or what is evil is at men's own choice. And that the only one or the other belongs so to everyone, and that they may act as they please. They also take away the belief of the immortal duration of the soul and the punishments and rewards in Hades. Moreover, the Pharisees are friendly to one another and are for the exercise of concord and regard for the public. But the behavior of the Sadducees, one towards another, is in some degree wild, and their conversation with those that are of their own party is as barbarous as if they were strangers to them. And this is what I had to say concerning the philosophic sects among the Jews. In other words, everybody hated them. They were horrid, even to each other. Antiquities 13, 297 uh, through 298. This is also Josephus. But of these matters we shall speak hereafter. What I would now explain is this that the Pharisees have delivered to the people a great many observances, 
by succession from their fathers, which are not written in the laws of Moses. And for that reason, it is that the Sadducees reject them and say that we are to esteem those observances to be obligatory, which are in the written word, but are not to observe what are derived from the traditions of our forefathers. And concerning these things, it is that great disputes and differences have risen among them, while the Sadducees are able to persuade none but the rich and have not the populace obsequious to them, but the Pharisees have the multitude on their side. But about these two sects and that of the Essenes, I have treated accurately in the second book of Jewish affairs. Antiquities 18, verses 16 through 17. But the doctrine of the Sadducees is this, that souls die with the bodies. Nor do they regard the observation of anything besides what the law enjoins them. For they think it an instance of virtue to dispute with those teachers of philosophy whom they frequent. But this doctrine is received by but a few, yet by, by those still of the greatest dignity. But they are able to do almost nothing of themselves, for when they become magistrates, as they are unwillingly and by force sometimes obliged to be, they, ad they addict themselves to the notions of the Pharisees because the multitude would otherwise not bear them. And the later rabbis, you need to know, were really touchy about the resurrection. Here is uh, Mishnah Sanhedrin um, 10.1. All of the Jewish people, even sinners and those who are liable to be executed with a court-imposed death penalty, have a share in the world to come, as it is stated. And your people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, for my name to be glorified. Uh, that's a quote from Isaiah sixty twenty one. And these are the exceptions. The people who have no share in the world to come, even when they have fulfilled many mitzvot, commandments, one who says there is no resurrection of the dead derived from the Torah, and the one who says the Torah did not originate from heaven, and an Epicuros who treats Torah scholars and the Torah that they teach with contempt. Rabbi Akiva says, also included in the exceptions, are one who reads external literature <laughs> and one who whispers invocations over a wound and says an invocation for healing. Incant... Yeah, oh, sorry, not incantations. I thought <laughs> saying invocations. Every illness that I placed upon Egypt, I will not place upon you, for I am the Lord, your healer. Exodus fifteen twenty six. Sounds like Rabbi Akiva kind of believed in the prosperity gospel. By doing so, he shows contempt for the sanctity of the name of God and therefore has no share in the world to come. Abba Shaul says, also included... In the exceptions is one who pronounces the ineffable name of God as it is written with its letters. Verse 19. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a, ma if a man's brother dies and he leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Nothing controversial here. This is just what Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 through 10 outlines in the Torah. This is protection for widows carried out to extreme measures throughout the ancient world. 
This wasn't just an Israel thing. When a woman contracted through her father and her husband's father to become part of her husband's family, they gave her certain protections in case she was widowed without sons. Sons, of course, would inherit their father's portion of the estate and would thus provide for their mother. Without this protection, she could be abandoned by her husband's family and left destitute. And so it was the job of another brother to impregnate the widow and to give her a son so that she would be provided for. Yeah, we're grossed out, but marriage wasn't a love connection back then. It was about heirs for the man and security for the woman. It's a business arrangement. But here, the Sadducees think they're just being so cute. I imagine this was a famous talking point that they would pull out whenever they wanted to irritate the Pharisees. Verse 20. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. I can, I can, like, always see a little smirk when they think they've got him cornered. I mean, all these people have thought they had him cornered, right? It's like people who argue over masks on social media with their clever little talking points that make me, as a scientist, want to rip out my eyeballs with a fork. Because some people shouldn't try to do science, okay? You don't see me out there talking about computer programming, right? If you don't understand about particle size... And the difference between gases and liquids and solids, then just stop. <sighs> if you don't know the difference between farts and poop, just stop too. Okay. There's a difference between having an opinion about effectiveness, which everyone should be able to have, and trying to sound scientific when you don't understand the, the basics of chemistry and biology. You're only fooling the easily fooled and those people who really want to believe something. But, you know, that has nothing to do with this, so let's get back to the topic. So they have their clever little story, and Yeshua is going to own them in a particularly satisfying manner. You see, their real argument is that Moses wouldn't legislate adultery, and so there can be no resurrection. They have it in their minds only one way this can go, that things will continue on as they have always been if in the world to come, which they don't think there's going to be. Women will still be given in marriage, Men will still take wives, people will need to reproduce, and they will still need heirs, and women will always need the security of marriage. These men cannot imagine a world any different from the one they have always known. All right? This is a problem. It assumes that the institutions of this world that we need now because of how things are will be necessary in the world to come. They can't imagine a world that is just, mostly because they're unjust, because they don't think that there's any good in living as though there's going to be a final judgment. You know, when you don't believe there's going to be a final judgment, man, you can get away with a lot, Jack, okay? Okay, so that's why they were rich, and they collaborated with the Romans. Yeah. So verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He's talking to the chief priests here, the Sadducees. 
the elites among the priesthood and the richest people. So, you know, two really scathing insults here. Is it any reason you are so totally wrong when you are ignorant of the scriptures and you have no respect or appreciation whatsoever for the absolute power and authority of God? Not to mention his justice and righteousness and that he actually cares about the widows and orphans that these guys are just... Okay, I'm just going to stop going off script here. I mean, you here you guys are with your little story and having God in your little box, thinking you have him hedged in with your little argument to satisfy your little agenda because you don't think there's any resurrection. And given the fact that if I was living the way you guys were living, I wouldn't want a final judgment either. You see exactly what you want to see and nothing more. Please allow me to divest you of your blatant and irresponsible level of ignorance. Okay, maybe that's a little extreme, but, a, you know, a girl can dream, right? Verse 25. For when they arise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. He goes right back to the story about the woman and the seven brothers. If they made a musical of that, I guess it would be called One Bride for Seven Brothers. Oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> just terrible. I hate that musical. It's my least favorite. Oh, okay. So when they, the woman and the brothers, are raised, they are no longer needing this human institution. Not because they become angels. Jeez, this, you know, this verse really gets abused, but they are only like the angels. And if they are like angels, then they are also not like angels, otherwise it would say they become angels, which it doesn't. But angels don't need to get married. They're beyond that. Angels exist to serve God and humans, and hey, you know, so are we. We're created for that too. In the world to come then, according to the expert, the entire male-female dichotomy is over once and for all. I mean, I'm sure we will still be male and female, but it just won't matter anymore. Men will no longer follow the ways of Adam in dominating women. And this verse is more important than it first seems for this reason. Right now, there is so much angst within the body of Messiah over like two verses in the writings of Paul that seem to subordinate women within the body as to what they can and can't do which, of course, ignores the historical context of the community those two letters were written to, and also other, ignores other verses that fly in the face of those two, when taken, you know, as hard and fast rules for all communities and all times. I taught the kids a few months ago on my other radio show, if something won't be important to us or matter to us in the world to come, like the color of our skin, should we treat one another differently about it now? Of course not. We are kingdom people. If it will be true, then we need to work for it now. We need to be respectful and not scandalize the rest of the world, which was Paul's point in those two communities. But we can't be ruled by the world either. We can't oppress anyone just because that's what the world's doing. So we can't have slaves, okay, just because some people in the world have slaves. We must be part of the kingdom, 
even though we don't under we don't see it completely around us yet. So we're there. It's it's yes, but not yet. A lot of scholars say that. I like that. So do we really think that men are going to still be dominant over women in the kingdom? Or is that the only Genesis 3 consequence that we keep for all time, even though death and the curse of the ground are both long since dealt with? Just bugging your ear there. And as far as the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Or as I have to say, you are so wrong. Anyway, so right here is the kicker. They do not know the scripture and they do not know his power. And the worst thing is that he used the Torah, which is the only text recognized by them as authoritative. So it's like, you guys don't even know the short section of scriptures that you're putting all your faith in. <laughs> Yahweh made promises to Abraham and his seed. In Genesis 17, 8, he says, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Well, if there is no resurrection, then Yahweh lied to Abraham. He said he would give the lamb to Abraham, land to Abraham personally, and to Isaac and Jacob and their offspring. But until the generation after the Exodus, none of them possessed it. How can this be? Is Yahweh unfaithful? No. The only solution is that Abraham and his seed will possess the land in the world to come. Abraham is not dead. Isaac's not dead. Jacob is not dead. I don't know if they're a sleeper with Yahweh right now. The Bible doesn't really say. It says different things. I don't know how it works exactly. Because there are a lot of verses that say different things that I can't reconcile right now. And frankly, I don't even care how it works. I trust that it does work and that Yahweh is just. Because he is just... There has to be a resurrection or injustice wins. More importantly, death wins. Every murderer wins. Okay? You can't have a curse win. That doesn't make any sense at all. Sin wins if there's no resurrection. God loses if there is no resurrection. The only people who win would be the wicked who were rich and who did whatever they wanted and went unpunished, which is exactly what the Sadducees were counting on. It's like, what's that saying? Um, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. <laughs> you know, that's like their little mantra. We also see this same thing in Exodus 6, verses 2 through 4. Um, God spoke to Moses. And said to them, um, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. 
And this did not go unnoticed by later rabbis who said in um, Babylonian Talmud Sanhedrin 90b, it is taught in a Bereta that Rabbi Simai says, from where is the resurrection derived from the Torah? It is derived from a verse, as it is stated with regard to the patriarchs. I have also established my covenant with them to give to them the land of Canaan. It's Exodus 6.4. To phrase, to give to you the land of Canaan, is not stated, as the meaning of the verse is not that God fulfilled the covenant with the patriarchs when he gave the land of Canaan to the children of Israel. Rather, it is stated to give to them the land of Canaan, meaning to the patriarchs themselves. From here, it is derived that the resurrection of the dead is from the Torah, as in the future, the patriarchs will come to life and inherit the land. Um, and again, you know, like the Sanhedrin delegation and the Herodians and the Pharisees, the Sadducees were pictured here as silence. So, you know, again, mic drop. Next week, oh, sorry, I keep swallowing. I got the sorest throat. Um, next week we'll have a nice change of pace with a scribe who is not far from the kingdom and a controversy about the son of David. And I like passages like this because, you know, a lot of us were taught that all the Jews were just clueless and all the Jews were his enemies. And, you know, that's just not how the scripture reads. And a lot of the priests came to faith in him. A lot of the Pharisees came to faith in him. And this scribe, I wouldn't doubt if he came to faith in him after the resurrection too. You know, you can't, um, only the Sadducees. <laughs> well, the, the only people we never hear about coming to faith were the Sadducees because they really had a vested interest. And plus they were the ones that actually conspired with the Romans, the Sadducees, the chief priests. Anyway, um, see you next week.